This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Elections are coming. No, not in 2022, although those are looming. But much sooner than that, because in November of this year, 2021, there are what are called off-year elections. Not everywhere. In fact, only in a handful of places. What are they all about and why do they matter? Well, they matter in part because they give a window into how American politics is playing out and what we might see as the big campaign themes for the big midterm elections about 13 months from now, and just a temperature check on how the two big parties and the presidency of Joe Biden are faring. To find out more, I wanted to talk to someone who lives and breathes these contests, and that is Jessica Taylor, who is the Senate and Governor's Editor for the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. Now, when I was in Washington, D.C., the Cook Political Report was an indispensable newsletter giving fine-grained detail on contests right down to the tiniest town and city and congressional district in America. They pour over the data. Now, as I say, under new management with Amy Walter at the helm. But the person who follows the elections we're talking about is Jessica Taylor. And my first question to her was, why is it that some places go to the polls a year ahead of everyone else. Some states just like to be special. And I live here in Virginia, and it really does seem like we vote every single year, it feels like. So right after the presidential year, there are two states that elect governors every year after that, Virginia and New Jersey. And then the year after the midterm, so a year before the presidential election, there are three states that elect governors, Mississippi, Kentucky, and Louisiana. So these are sort of, you know, the five odd ones. But you know, what is interesting about these that come after, they can give us sort of a hint of what the upcoming midterms may be like. And especially in Virginia, it has typically been a bellwether for what type of election cycle is going to happen for the president's party in power. You go back nearly 40 years and there was a streak that the opposite party from the White House always won this election. Now, that was broken in 2013 by Terry McAuliffe, who is running again and is trying to break that streak once again. Well, you've plunged us right in with the, with the first of these two big contests with Virginia. I mean, Virginia's quirky anyway, isn't it? Because nobody ever seeks re-election, as it were. There's this, there is a term limit on one term. 
But you've told us the Democrat there, Terry McAuliffe, is a previous governor. Not He's not the incumbent, but he was previously. Tell us who he's up against in Virginia and why it matters. Yeah, so Virginia is the only state left in the country that still bars governors from running for re-election. But of course, because Terry McAuliffe is running again, you can seek non-consecutive terms. Now, only one other governor has ever been successful in doing that, and they switched parties to run. So if he wins, he would be the only one to be elected from the same party in non-consecutive years. Oh, I think, listen, you know I'm a very straight shooter. I'm very authentic. I sort of call him the way I see him. I think that's why people, you know, uh, like working with me and very straight. I mean, before he was elected governor, he was sort of the chief fundraiser and very close with the Clintons. Um, He was DNC chair. So He's been seen as this sort of the consummate political insider, and that's what Republicans are trying to sort of paint again. Now, the Republican that he's up against is Glenn Youngkin. Government doesn't work for us. Uh, It seems to be telling us what to do, and even things like the DMV really don't work for us anymore. And so he is a former head of uh, Carlisle, which is a sort of venture capitalist firm. And you have two men here that are incredibly wealthy. Youngkin has put a lot of his own money into the race. And this is really the only race dating back 12 years, which is the last time Republicans were successful in winning the governor's race, where the race, where Republicans have even been at parity. I mean, it is amazing how interesting uh, Virginia is because of the journey it's had. Even in my own journalistic lifetime, it was actually uh, you know a republican state back in the 90s it's gone it then became a you know definitive purple state you know swinging between the two and now i think people do think of it as a blue state and it when you know it was seen as pretty comfortable for the democrats at presidential level so all eyes will be on it there'll be there'll be a lot of interest in it and and it's fascinating because as you said terry mccauliffe a real democratic insider very easy to tie him to joe biden but the t word donald trump and how closely the Republican candidate, Glenn Youngkin, how easily it is to tie him to Donald Trump. Just on sort of the facts of it, I mean, is Glenn Youngkin a Trump Republican or, or is that, a you know, what, what the Democrats want to, voters to think he is? Or is he, you know, trying to sort of run from Trump and run away from Trump? He sort of had, had it both ways in some instances. You look at him and he doesn't, he doesn't come off, his rhetoric does not come off as a Trump Republican. He's not out there saying every single day the election was stolen, Donald Trump deserves to be back in office. He's not, you know, spewing conspiracy theories daily or something. He comes off as more of a Mitt Romney type. He's sort of a buttoned up businessman. You know, he's wearing like a fleece polo out there campaigning with people. He does not come off as Trumpian. But he faces the difficult task that a lot of Republicans do right now of trying to not alienate the Trump base, but trying to bring in moderates and independents and bring back into the coalition, especially sort of disaffected suburban voters that were once Republicans, but were sort of repulsed by Trump. But I suppose he's got to thread this needle, hasn't he? Because he does have to, as you say, not alienate those suburban potential sort of purple voters. But at the same time, he does need some of those Trump base voters. And they they also exist in parts of the state of Virginia. They do. And I think it's because this is a turnout election. When you have an off off year election like this, who gets their base out matters. So Youngkin needs those people to turn out. And I think that's why you don't see him pushing masks more than than he really is. Um, in their final debate, McAuliffe made a statement where when, you know, he was questioned about a veto he did 
about potential banning of subjects and books in schools. Yeah, I stopped the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. But, you know, I get really. Um, he said, you know, parents shouldn't have this much of a say in schools. And Youngkin has really seized on that. Now, there's been, you know, with schools opening back up and then, of course, the vaccines and masks and different things. It's become such a hot button issue that you've had protests at school board meetings. There have been threats against school board members. Um, so can he sort of take that energy and win back suburban voters that are very concerned about their children. There's also the issue of critical race theory, which we have we have heard Trump and others seize upon. We've actually seen the McAuliffe Northam administration try to teach our children what to think. And we know that our schools are supposed to teach our kids how to think. And, and explain that to us, because that is, you know, that's a that's a doctrine. It's a label for a quite academic uh, sort of theoretical set of ideas that really were confined to college campuses. And yet now it's there as a sort of battlefield issue in gubernatorial election in America. That's will, I think, you know, astonish some people that it's become a political issue. Explain to us how it's gone from being a quite esoteric academic phrase and idea right there into being on the stump in Virginia. I mean, I think it's because it sounds like a scary thing, critical race theory, and, oh, you're going to teach kids that everyone is inherently racist and try to sort of divide people, when in fact, you're right, it is sort of, it's far more nuanced than that, and not something that is being taught in any Virginia schools, and certainly not in any elementary schools or things like that. But as I understand it, it's being spun as these critical race theory types, these Democrats, want to teach white people that they should feel guilty, that they what being white is bad, etc. That's how it's being sort of caricatured. It would, is that a fair summary? Yes, it is. Um, so that's sort of something he is really talking about. And will this sort of scare enough people, perhaps? You know, Republicans do think that it is a winning issue. So I think um, Youngkin is really trying to, to tap into that. And we will see whether it works. But look, it's not only Virginia that is voting. There is a big race as well, as you said, in New Jersey, governor's race. It's a different part of the country. Commonwealth of Virginia is still part of the historic South, of course, and race plays a, a very uh, particular role in those kinds of states. New Jersey, what is, what's, what's the big battleground there? How's that being fought out, Jessica? I mean, this is a much safer Democratic seat. We rate it a safe Democrat right now. I mean, we're certainly watching it in these closing days to see whether it could tighten. There's been some polling showing it closer than it probably should be, but still with incumbent Governor Phil Murphy there with a comfortable lead over um, Jack Cittarelli, who's a former state assemblyman. He had embraced Trump early. He has backed off of that somewhat. So he's also sort of trying to have it a little bit both ways, especially in the recent weeks. He's backed away from that. But again, I think his strategy is still you need to turn out the base. Um, and I think just the numbers are not there in New Jersey for as much of an upset as they still are in Virginia, because that still continues to be a much closer democratic state. You've touched on this all, all through our conversation, but I think it's pretty direct as an issue in New Jersey, and that is COVID and the pandemic. Uh, and it's it sort of got front and centre in that election. Just to, to tell us why, what the governor has done, what his opponent says, and how a matter of public health has become so political. This is sort of the first test of a governor 
who has had to enact very tough COVID measures. New Jersey, obviously very populous just outside New York City. A lot of people commuting in and out of there. So they had one of the highest, earliest spikes. Republicans have already indicated that in next year's gubernatorial elections, they intend to sort of use overreach of COVID mandates as an issue. So given that this is the only incumbent governor on the ballot, what Murphy ends up getting could give us a look into that. And what exactly has um, the governor done that has been seen as overreach? Mass mandates, vaccine mandates, different things like that. So, you know, it's a pretty liberal state. So most of those, I think, are supported. But again, you have people that that don't like it. <laughs> yeah, and the Democratic governor in that state, even imposing a mask mandate on two-year-olds, uh, kids in nurseries and kindergartens, and that's obviously really pushed the limit. But it is fascinating, especially from uh, this vantage point where I'm sitting, to see this business of masks and the level of preparedness against a pandemic being seen in such partisan terms. I mean, this is something peculiar to the United States where you can more or less work out how someone votes by whether or not they're wearing a mask or whether or not they have agreed to be vaccinated. And that is playing out in this set of elections. Yeah, it's it's just become so incredibly polarized. You're exactly right. I mean, for instance, I grew up in Tennessee. I went back there for about six weeks recently, and it was nine day from here in D.C. where virtually no one was wearing masks and the vaccination rate there is 35 percent. Of course, hospitals there were filled with Delta um, and a, at a much higher rate than just across the border in Virginia, where there were mask mandates and requiring masks in schools. Now, in a way, California's already had well, in some way, cases, if only just because it is the biggest state in the union, the most populous state in the union, uh, has had perhaps the most consequential election already this year. This was not even a normal election. This was a recall ballot. Explain for us what's happened in California. Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom will keep his job. ABC News projecting no in the recall race. So the recall essentially gives citizens the power to try to oust the incumbent if they believe that he or she is um, acting unfavorably. And if you get enough signatures, which the threshold in California is very low, then you can get that on the ballot and put that question. And of course, it did happen famously in California with in the case of incumbent Governor Gray Davis, Democrat, who was ejected and replaced by Arnie Schwarzenegger. It did. In 2003, Davis was far, far more unpopular than Newsom was at this point. His approval ratings were in the 20s. Also, Democrats did not really run a replacement candidate for Newsom versus there was Democrats, including the lieutenant governor that ran in 2003, that a lot of people felt undermined Davis in that way. But right now, Democrats had rallied behind Newsom. And I think they also benefited from the fact that the leading Republican candidate at that point became Larry Elder, who is a very conservative radio host and was really got painted as a mini Trump. He was giving Democrats gifts at this point about things that he would do to overturn measures that are very popular and very blue and very liberal California. And the state has also become far more liberal and more democratic since 2003. Yeah, so it's getting bluer and bluer, but Republicans did had 
just enough in terms of signatures to get this to go to a ballot. Do you want Newsom to stay or not, the Democrat? Uh, they got the ballot. But when it came to it, people voted uh, essentially to keep the Democrat gov Democratic governor there. Republicans couldn't turn that very, very blue state red. Do Democrats draw and should they draw any conclusions from that? Or is that really uh, just so obvious that a state like California would would keep its Democratic governor that in a way they can't draw any lessons or even, you know, comfort from that outcome? Well, two things. Democrats are supposed to win in California. That's what happened. But when you have potentially a low turnout election, a low enthusiasm election, if you have someone that is sort of the boogeyman there to motivate people to go to the polls in the same way that Trump has been for Democrats for the past four years, they really sort of made it like Trump was on the ballot with Elder. And that really got people out, I think. So that's the pattern that you're sketching out so brilliantly for us, is that the common theme in these contests from one end of the country, you know, in Virginia and New Jersey to the other in California is tying Republicans wherever Democrats can to Donald Trump. Is this then what we're seeing in these off-year ballots? Is it a dress rehearsal for the kind of campaign you expect Democrats to run in those all-important midterm elections in November 2022? I think that Democrats sort of need to run a hybrid of this, that if Trump is still around, which he is, he is endorsing in primaries and in races, then he becomes a factor. But what also is harming Democrats in Virginia, and I think this is the biggest thing as we go into the midterms, is that Joe Biden has seen his popularity drop over the past few months after Afghanistan, after crises at the border, humanitarian crises with Haitian refugees coming in signature things he is trying to get through Congress, infrastructure, and everything else has completely stalled. So that's where I think the biggest threat from McAuliffe is, is that these are these Democratic voters who, in many ways, are just tired of turning out and voting. Do they look at Democrats and say, okay, what have you done for me? I voted for you last year, and I don't see any results. So that's the biggest thing weighing on McAuliffe right now um, and why this race is so close. He's essentially said as much in many ways. He's pushed Democrats to do something in Congress. And I really think they do need to produce some results, perhaps before the election in just under three weeks. That is a really interesting point. So there's Democrats who want to just say to about every Republican they're tied to Trump. But for Republicans, they can say, you voted for the Democrats to win the House the Senate and the White House, and they haven't done anything. And unless that turns around, that could be Democrats' equivalent weakness, if you like, going into those, the immediate elections and the elections to come in 13 months' time. Absolutely. I mean, we see the president's first midterm elections. They almost always lose seats in the House. You know, the most recent time that they did not was right after 9-11 in the 2002 election. So we had a much sort of, you know, unity feel in the country for George W. Bush. But then, of course, in his other midterm election in 2006, Republicans uh, lost the House. So we're seeing these sort of major swings, really, 
against a president's party in their first midterm election. And that's what Biden has to very much worry about because Democrats have a much smaller majority in the House than they did when they were actually expected to gain seats in 2020. And that didn't happen. And then in the Senate, it's literally 50-50. We've talked about that on on this podcast. I mean, what's your last thing on this? What's your read of this dip for Joe Biden? Is it just a temporary dip? And if he manages to pass of those big infrastructure and spending bills, then things turn around. Or, and you've been watching polls for many, many years, you're very experienced in reading the political tea leaves. Is Does this look like a permanent, uh, d- d- you know, a trough that Joe Biden is in that really, even if Democrats pass things in Congress, he is stuck with this low approval number? I think that passing things will help. But the other thing that is affecting this is covid and some of a lot of that is out of his control. He came into office. I think Biden campaigned as competent. He said, I will sort of return normalcy to the White House. I think that's what a lot of voters wanted. They just wanted it to be normal again, especially on COVID. That's what they were wanting. And we saw at the advent of his presidency, vaccines are being distributed. Kids are going back to school. We were turning the corner. And then we sort of hit a plateau with where vaccines are. Well, we have seen even in focus groups, that's what's driving in everything. And again, while I'm not sure this is Joe Biden's fault specifically, you blame who is in power. And that blame, I think, is sort of and frustration is coming down on him. So I think the country needs to turn a real corner on COVID and not see another spike because of some different variant. But I think he also has to show real results coming out of Congress, which has not happened yet. Jessica, before we let you go, we always ask our guests a what else question. I know this is absolutely not your field, um, but just your your reaction to how this plays politically. Word has emerged this week that uh, former President Donald Trump wanted to nominate his daughter Ivanka to be the head of the World Bank. What do you say to that? I think that would have been just another sort of crazy story and gotten a lot of blowback because we've seen a lot of stories, these books that have come out from Trump aides and different things sort of showing how really a lot of people on the inside thought that, you know, Jared and Ivanka were the ones really steering him wrong on many things. So um, I think his over-reliance on his family was one of the biggest hindrances to his presidency. Yeah. And apparently we're told that it was Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin who vetoed it. And a lot of people say that's the least credible bit of the whole story. They can't quite believe Mnuchin would have stood up to Donald Trump. But Jessica Taylor of the Cook Political Report, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. And that is all from me for this week. Before I go, I want to ask if I can a little favour. We want to know more about what you like about the show and what kinds of things you'd like to hear more of. So the team has put together a survey for you to take if you have a couple of minutes to spare. So head over to theguardian.com slash podcast hyphen survey. And we really look forward to hearing your thoughts. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer this week was Danielle Stevens. And I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please look after yourselves. And thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.